Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world, and other times like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning and today I'm joined by YB Lim Yi Wei, a passionate politician who was elected with a 30,000 plus majority in the 2018 general election as she became Kampung Tungku's first state assembly woman. Yi Wei is recognized as a formidable force in the Malaysian politics, which she decided to enter after returning in 2016 from Hong Kong, where she worked as a conference producer for Incisive Media. At the start of her political career, she became the political secretary of Tony Poir and later served as a councillor for Pataling Jaya City Council in September 2016. Yiwei has championed several causes close to her heart, including youth and women empowerment and mental health, organizing various forums and lectures on these important topics. So today we'll be discussing Yiwei's journey into Malaysian politics and her hopes for the future regarding mental health and women empowerment in Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Yiwei. How are you? Thanks, uh, Sokling. Thanks for having me here today. <laughs> so uh, I've known you for a while now, um, and, and you invited me to, to give a talk when you were a councillor at Pataling Jaya a City Council. And over the course, I think you have really been championing and been steadfast and prioritizing mental health as something being very important. Um, but before your transformation as a formidable force, um, you were a drummer. Um, so we've kind of ducked into your past and you were a drummer and the only female member in a group called the No Girls Band. And then after that, you had a successful career in a male-dominated industry. Um, so what has the journey been for you? I imagine that you are, I don't know, somehow when I say a drummer, I imagine you're a punk rocker and then you transformed and you grew your hair long <laughs> and now you're demure and you wear baju kurongs all the time. So what has that uh, journey been uh, like for you? You know, the funny thing is um, in... In my band days, my hair wasn't long. Actually, it was quite short. So it's funny that you mentioned it. Um, I think the journey into politics has been a good and very, uh, a one which is full of uh, learning. Every day I learn something different. And like my previous fields, uh, it is very male-dominated. So sometimes it can get a little uh, intimidating um, but I think that's why that's why you know we are here, myself and other young women politicians. It's to uh, break the mold and to also offer uh, more diverse representation uh, to Malaysians. Are you ever aware of you being a woman? So often my day to day, and whenever I get this question, I bring this up because obviously I'm aware I'm a woman, but I don't I don't feel. You know, it's not like every day I go into the mirror and go, you're a woman. I just feel me. Do you know what I mean? And so is gender something you're aware of or you just go, you know what? I'm just doing what I'm doing and, and championing the causes and making life better for the people in my community. 
Um, it's a little bit of both. Um, I was very lucky to be raised in a rather gender neutral household. So my parents insisted that, you know, uh, my sister and I be able to perform the same task as my brother and vice versa. So like my brother has to know how to cook and clean the house, you know, things that are traditionally in the female domain. Uh, and my sister and I were taught how to use like uh, home home uh, equipment, like, you know, hammer drills and stuff like that. Uh, so we were very lucky in that regard. And we were never told that, you know, you can't do something just because you're a boy or a girl. Uh, but having said that, um, in politics, I think... Um, I try to bring along that realization that many women do not have that same background mm. and uh, there are certain uh, structures uh, in place that that uh, actually prevent women from uh, speaking up. So, you know, I I realize the privilege that I have and I realize the the benefits uh, that I've received from uh, you know coming from a gender neutral background um but I also you know, have to be very mindful that sometimes um, certain groups of women make choices that I might not agree with because of their background. And it's important to to just carry that reminder along. Yeah, but I, I wake up in the morning and, you know, I feel me. And and sometimes it gets tricky when, when uh, we go into a certain situation where uh, they expect me to behave a certain way and I don't. And that is right. a bit... Awkward. Right, then you whip out the drumsticks and start <laughs> thinking. <laughs> did, did you have a nickname um, when you were a, a drummer? No, no, I didn't. No. Okay, well, there goes the scandal. Okay, so there's no scandal there, just like no girls band. So, you know, from drummer then... Um, working in Hong Kong, but what inspired you to come back to Malaysia and to politics? You know, did you have a, a vision in mind uh, about what you wanted to do or you just thought with the new developments in Malaysian politics, you wanted to come home? I think it was a slow burn, a combination of many factors. So as a teenager, I was quite the bookworm. And uh, so naturally, I started gravitating towards reading like lots of news and following local and international affairs. Uh, but because my parents were civil servants, so the idea of joining uh, politics uh, back in Ipoh was uh, not, not on the books. Um, so I went to Hong Kong, I did my degree, and then I finished and started working. Um, in 2014, late 2014, the Hong Kong Umbrella Revolution started and a lot of the prominent leaders were youths. Uh, that time, Joshua Wong was uh, barely 18 years old. And I think their, you know, their, their fighting spirit and their keen understanding of democracy um, raised some questions within myself. And you know, 2014 was the year after uh, GE13 in Malaysia of which uh, we managed to deny uh, Barisan National two-thirds majority, but we still didn't manage to change the government. So, so I was you know, not really happy with uh, that development. And so it came to a point where I think you know, I, I looked at my job in Hong Kong and you know, how near I was to getting a PR. And I thought you know, if, if I'm not happy about the way things are going in Malaysia, then I should try to do something about it. And so, yeah, I did it. <laughs> that's where we are today. And that's where we are today. I, I like that's perfectly sums up a great motivation. You know, I wasn't happy with it. And, and so I, I decided to do it. And that was, I mean, that's something that, um, you know, the state of mental health in Malaysia is something that both of us are fairly uh, unhappy about. And we think there are a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. um, 
but you know, I started with this about like six years ago, um, fairly naive, I think, you know, like I didn't know. And, and I think that's a good energy to go into a field, a new place and going, I don't really know much, um, but I have enough skills, you know, I'm a trained mental health professional. Um, I do know some stuff and I want to try to do something. But along the way, I realized that the things that I thought possible made me much more difficult to do. You know, is there something that you've, you, you know, you talked about learning something different every day? Is that something that you've learned that you wish your younger self knew? I'd say growing up in Ipoh, um, we were more shielded from like grassroots politics. So everything I experienced before joining politics officially in 2016 was, was out of the books. And I think that's actually a loss because politics influences pretty much every sphere of our life, whether you realize it or not. Because um, through politics, you know, you have you have policies um, which drill down all the way to the local council level, uh, which influence uh, things like, you know, when your taman rubbish uh, collection happens, you know, how many times did it happen a week and is the contractor trustworthy or not? Um, so I guess I wish I knew all these things earlier and was more exposed to it because I, I think like a lot of, you know, after... Uh, 2013 uh, sorry 2008 and 2013 there was an influx of a lot of like young people like me who who were drawn to politics because suddenly it looked like you know the opposition could mount a fight towards uh, the Barisan national hegemony uh, and I guess a lot of us were very naive and um, I know quite a few people who've you know decided to uh, just return to corporate because they were so disheartened. And I think that that also springs from a situation where this is what we read and this is what we know uh, being very different from what is on the ground. So for example, like um, you know the general assumption is that, oh, city people are more educated and therefore they make better choices and Kampung people don't know anything. They vote for $50 and a bag of rice. Uh, but through my experience in PJ and also doing campaigning in other rural areas, uh, you do meet people who just overturn those assumptions and it can be very tricky and just a lot to think about. And then you realize, oh my goodness, sometimes city folk make terrible decisions too. And uh, city folk also are not immune to goodies. So, wow, you know, where do you go? So that all these like stereotypes are challenged. Um, the more mm-hmm. the more you enter this field, and the more yeah. people like this you meet. Yeah, in the backdrop, I mean, uh, it's always the question of you know what does it mean to be like Malaysian or Bangsa Malaysia or Keluarga Malaysia, which is the new slogan. Well, that is a deep question. Do you have an answer yet? Not yet. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, let me know. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you my take on it, even though nobody is asking for it. Because um, I've, I've obviously spent many of my years uh, abroad and I'm very proud to be Malaysian. And, but I also find that Malaysians of, of all the, the many Asian nationalities, Malaysians have a great sense of humor about mm-hmm. themselves. You know, I was talking to uh, my roommate in, in Canada I was talking about sort of the downsides and the downsides of what I saw about the other government. And he was like, 
you know, would you like it if I said something bad about Malaysia? I was like, by all means, like, let me tell you the downsides. You know, those things, but, you know, I can tell you all the, uh, the, the bad things about Malaysia, about the society that I wish to change. But, but at the end of the day, I think Malaysians have this openness and recognition about our weaknesses. But also, we're quite realistic about our strengths. And not just about nasi lemak, but, you know, about the, I think, inherent um, resilience of our people having gone through many, many things, you know, uh, different organizations, governments, uh, tragedies, and still having um, a view of life that's not overly cynical and, and mm-hmm. depressing. I think overall, we're a largely resilient uh, folk that don't take ourselves overly seriously, mm-hmm. you know, so... Um, I don't know. So I, I think, what does it mean to be Malaysian? I think have a good sense of humor about life. Mm-hmm. We're more creative than we think we we are. I think yeah. Malaysians are super creative. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that'd be a gr- the best political slogan though. Like Malaysians, <laughs> we laugh at ourselves. Um, but yeah, that's that's. I think that's why I really um, am proud. I guess I'm proud to be Malaysian. So. Uh, going back to, you know, um, our joint cause and, and something we both care about very deeply, so mental health. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, mental health issues in Malaysia has seen just a, a tremendous rise, you know, um, even in, in the number of suicides. You know, so could you tell me your experience um, on the ground and in your community, but also as an assembly woman about the type of changes I think policymakers are looking at to improve mental health in Malaysia? Um, I think from the policymaker uh, point of view, one of the biggest challenges we have is uh, in terms of resources. So I'm on the state level, uh, whereas healthcare is a federal issue. So all this time, um, the Slangor state has been trying to complement the services provided by uh, federal Simply put, and I think you know the problems better than I do, we, we still need more professionals to deal with the public. You know, we need better, uh, you know, more robust health, mental health care system, uh, more follow-up, more everything. Um, so on the ground, I don't often get issues that are directly related to mental health. For example, let's say dealing with someone who, who seems mentally disturbed uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, But with all of our cases, there's definitely a mental health component. So for example, in the case of domestic violence, uh, one of the first things that uh, we do with our cases is to assess the mental state of uh, the victim or the survivor uh, before we actually embark on uh, other steps such as uh, getting a restraining order. Um, Economic stresses are also uh, a huge factor in declining mental health. Um, When people apply at our office for food aid or other kinds of aid, uh, we usually do screening. And some of the people do cry on the phone and just tell us their whole family history. So there is a very heavy burden out there uh, that needs to be met. Again, you know, then we go back to the question of uh, resources. Yeah, so on the Slango State Government side, our State Minister for Health, uh, what we call EXCO, just launched um, this initiative, which is called Sehat Slang or Sehat meaning health, um, in which uh, it's integrated in our contact tracing app Slanka, where uh, people can answer 10 screening questions and a risk screening question. 
um, and also get access to educational videos about mental health and also access to a mental health professional. So it's just rolled out last month and um, I'm kind of excited to see what numbers uh, we've gotten from this, you know, how many people have been uh, assessed as needing a mental health professional help versus uh, how many who were, you know, assessed as okay and just went on to, to watch the educational videos. I think that would be quite interesting. So that, that sounds like a great initiative. So if people want to download the app, uh, what should they type in? Um, you type in Selangka. So that would be S-E-L-A-N-G-K-A-H. And then they will be able to have a mental health checkup and also watch videos about mental health and be able to get in touch with a mental health professional. Yep. Through that app. That's great. You know, and something that you kind of brought up um, is, you know, the lack of resources. And I think we, well, we as in the general public often don't realize how every state has their own allocation of resources, you know, Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily spread over. Um, So how would that work in terms of Selangor trying to increase, let's say, the number of mental health professionals for that state? Or is it something that the federal government has to work on? Unfortunately, we we don't have the allocation or the jurisdiction to increase mental health professionals for the state. Uh, That falls under the federal staffing. Um, But what we can do is to, I would say, you know, to actually provide maybe more helplines, more, uh, you know, localized counseling centers or to even offer you know, an upgraded training to, to the existing pool of counsellors so that they can do more you know, first aid uh, consultation before uh, people actually have to be escalated to a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist. Another area which I think Selangor could move in is um, we do have a hand in the staffing of the welfare department. So the Selangor uh, JKM, Jabatan Kebajikan Masyarakat or Welfare Department, uh, receives a number of staffing from the federal side and also from the state. Um, that's where I see where we can do, you know, advanced training. So the social workers are also given um, exposure to, to uh, mental health awareness and a certain, you know, skills, a specific set of skills so that they are able to deal uh, and also offer mental health first aid to their cases. So it's not necessary about adding more mental health professionals. It's also about upskilling the existing staff that you guys have. Yep. So there's mental health, but then there's also like other stuff that's important to you, um, youth and women empowerment, you know. Um, so is, is it sort of like your interests are, do, you know, do you see there's a, is there a theme to what you're passionate about or interested in, or is it more like, you know, different areas that um, sort of draw your attention? Um, I would say that the overarching theme would be, you know, I want to empower people to be able to make decisions for themselves. I think that's the most important thing. Um, That also applies to like, you know, how I see or, you know, how I hope politics uh, in Malaysia will be that, that, you know, our citizens are able to make their own decisions and are also comfortable with themselves. Because it really sort of, Makes sense. I mean, you're, you're focusing on maybe groups that are traditionally more socially disadvantaged, right? Or, or that don't really have a lot of voice, you know, mm-hmm. um, people with lived experiences, or, you know, with a, a mental illness. Um, 
youth or young people and women. So what do you think is the key steps into empowering um, women, young people, people with uh, lived experiences? You know, how can we get that done? You know, how can we help them feel capable and confident and able to make those decisions for themselves? I think um, one of the first steps is to get them together and ask them about what issues they care about. Uh, they do not have to, you know, like sound really fancy or big or serious issues, but basically, you know, what what bothers you? Yeah, I think maybe that's a st- good starting point. Or what bothers you? What would you like to change? And, and then we work from there. If, you know, to a, maybe a second question, like if I were in a position of, of power or, or, you know, able to make a change, what would I do? And then you kind of be able to gauge uh, the interest or where people's uh, passion lies and then, you know, work towards uh, helping them acquire the skills to effect that change. That's what I found out when, you know, I really started getting into this youth empowerment space uh, back in 2016-17. That was like two years before the general election. And a lot of people would say like, oh, youth, you know, they're not interested in politics. They don't care. You know, they don't care about anything. They just want to be on Instagram or, you know, now it's TikTok and all that, you know, they they don't care. But uh, that's not true. Um, I think... um, youths have an opinion they just need to know where to channel it and yeah and then um, I think you know the opinions um, and their observations are very surprising very enlightening and very interesting I mean young people especially probably in a hierarchical culture uh, like we are in often get overlooked but I mm-hmm. you know what I see especially in, in youth in mental health is that in, in some ways, I feel like the, the adults have sort of failed our youth and that the youth are needing to step up and provide their own support. And uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of them do so and, and, you know, with the peer support, which is great, but they're doing it unsupported. You know, mm-hmm. so they're not getting the support from the adults. And maybe, you know, adults have failed to kind of take them seriously or, or really implement and listen to what they need. Um, so, but they have, you know, I think our youth, today is a generation that feels, you know what, I see a need and I'm not going to wait. You know, they, they are quite a, um, an empowered generation and we can't lose that. You know, we can't lose, we really have to foster that because I think that's where the most positive change of our nation will come from. And so something you, you talked about of, of listening, so the, uh, taking a ground up approach, you know, like listening to what the people want, and that seems a little bit different from the the politics I'm I'm used to, where you know politicians tend to go, "This is what we think is good from you." You know, so where where did that I guess perspective or that practice come from? I would say from experience, I guess. Um, one of the inspirations uh, for for that, you know, like always listening is. Uh, my dad, he was a discipline teacher of a really naughty secondary school. Oh. The kind of, <laughs> he, he works in the morning session and in the afternoon, he spends it at the police station because someone brought a knife to the fight kind of thing, kind of school. Um, but what was interesting was um, my dad had this thing where he was very stern, but he would also uh, listen or ask like the very naughty kids what was actually bothering them. And uh 
he was also leading the debate team. So what um, he would do was to actually tarik the naughty, uh, the naughty kids to join the debate team and then coach them from there. So my approach uh, is shaped largely from that. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of like house visits and one-on-one consultations. And from experience, being too prescriptive isn't the way, you know, doesn't you um, maximum outcomes. Uh, it's true. Listening, then you get more tailored solutions. So sometimes like, I mean, we've, we've had early experiences where people come to us with, let's say, a problem. Um, let's say, you know, oh, she says, I, I need food. And then when we interview them more, then turns out that, oh, actually they need medicine help or they need counseling. Um, and then we are able to refer them to, to better help rather than, you know, just dumping a food basket and not addressing underlying issues that are more important. But that, that seems very time consuming. Mm, yes, but I would rather spend the time rather than give people something they don't need. Because I assume that, you know, I think, I mean, that sounds like a great approach and I think the right approach, but it takes up a lot from you. So I'm going to ask you, why be Lemmy Wei? What do you do for self-care? Uh, I work out, yeah. I, I lift weights at home. Anything else? I listen to Japanese metal. So that gets like my frustrations out. <laughs> <laughs> While lifting, <laughs> while lifting weights, um, does it ever feel like it, it's so heavy? You know, because you are still relatively young and you're carrying um, a lot of burdens. And is it ever, do you ever forget to self-care? Because I know I, I certainly do. Mm, yes, yes, definitely. Actually, most recently during the MCO 3.0 period, which started uh, 1st of June, where essentially Malaysia went into total lockdown I did have a spell about three weeks of feeling quite down because um because I guess you know you, you start asking yourself like oh my goodness everything's locked down my people can't go to work they're going to be hungry and super stressed and how many food baskets can we keep on giving mm-hmm. you know we keep seeing the same faces like every three weeks and I felt really powerless you know in trying to solve their problems I mean, we can give them stuff, but it's not sustainable. And it took a while for me to come out of that phase um, just by reminding myself that maybe those people would be worse off if if we didn't do our work. So, you know, just to keep plugging away at it. Yeah, that's a good reminder. I think with, you know, Relate, we, we are a relatively small organization and there's just you know, the endless number of people who actually need help, you know, and I, I have to keep reminding myself, I'm not, we're not a government organization that has tens of thousands of people, you know, we're a team of five or 10. And, you know, whatever we can do, I guess, that's going to have to be what we can do. And we're just going to do it well, but we can't save everyone, you know, yeah. and sort of the, there's, I think, an intrinsic sadness to that, because I think we, you want to always do more. You yeah, know, coming to terms with that you can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think there is also a little bit of guilt when, when we get like a particularly bad case and you ask yourself like, wait, why didn't I notice this? This was right in front of us all this time. So one example was um, we, we got news that um, this uh, man and his wife were living in a garden shed outside a house, a single-story house, because he, he used to rent a room in that house 
And then when, you know, uh, MCO hit, uh, he couldn't afford to pay the rent. And so he moved out into the garden shed. And that house is situated uh, on a road, which is usually used as a pass through through the area. So like, you know, my team and I, and basically like maybe half of my residents were just using that road, not realizing that there was a man and his wife living in a leaky garden shed. And when we found out about him, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, we, we've been passing all this time and and we didn't know, but but okay, I'm glad, you know, we we finally got to, to help him out. But yeah, you always think about, today I helped one family, but how many other families am I missing out? Um, that feeling also came back when we received a report of a child rape case. Yeah, I read about it in newspapers, then the mother approached us later on to, to seek other help and... Yeah, it's just difficult. But I think, you know, going back to what you said about like being small and scrappy, um, I think I feel that sometimes too because uh, my constituency, Kampung Tunku, is like tiny geographically. It's very dense. But yeah, everyone just thinks like it's really dinky and cute. <laughs> and so sometimes people don't pay attention um, to, to Kampung Tunku. But um, I think what has helped is that, um, you know, by being small and scrappy, you know, like people don't, don't think you really meant to. Um, it's actually given us the spirit to innovate uh, and to do, you know, try new ideas very quickly. So one of the things that I was quite happy to achieve uh, during this period was that um, through a radio interview, I managed to make contact with a uh, ride-sharing uh, company called Go Car, And uh, we actually came up with this collaboration that uh, would have them very senior citizens and people with disabilities to vaccination centers for free. So we ran that for three months and managed to ferry 1,283 uh, senior citizens and uh, people with disabilities and uh, other people started copying us. So that was quite cool. Yeah. Blazing the trail. Yeah. That's, yeah. It, is, it is true. I think, I think the benefit of, of not being under a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of scrutiny or attention, it gives you that, that um, freedom to try, try mm-hmm. to do something good and, and risk failure because you never know. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, after this podcast, you know, with uh, one listener, <laughs> one more person will know. Kampun um, Tungku, yeah. Um, so, so to our, our listeners out there who, you know, the young people, women, any any member of a socially disadvantaged group who think, you know, maybe I want to make a difference. You know, maybe I don't have to just be a drummer. <laughs> maybe I'm so young and scrappy, you know, like what advice, you know, would you give them if they're feeling small or, or ineffective or, you know, kind of just saying like, who am I to make a difference? You know, what advice would you give to them? Um, I would say the first thing is uh, seek out like-minded folk. Um, that's where you get to to discuss, you know, what you have to to bring to the table and also find out what's on the table. Uh, because sometimes, you know, we might have an idea and for all you know, you might think it's not very original, but when you actually meet with like-minded folks in the same, who are interested in the same cause, then uh you may find out that your idea was totally original or maybe needs a bit more reworking. Uh, so the first thing is, I guess, to to network, really. Yeah, network, network, network. But what if they're shy? You, they're you are also an introvert, if I'm not yes. mistaken, right? Yes. <laughs> so how do you network when you're feeling kind of shy or, or maybe you're 
you know, a little bit anxious about meeting new people? Uh, well, since we are still, you know, kind of locked down, social media is very useful. That's so true. <laughs> you go out and you can wear anything you want. Yeah, you can be yes. like typing something really intellectual in your pajamas and eating popcorn at the same time and not combing your hair. So, yeah, I think so we're now, like, we, now we know where your Twitter is, is coming from <laughs> and your clubhouse uh, clubhouse um, sessions are in your pajamas eating mm-hmm. popcorn. Yeah, all the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. I think you're so right. Actually, um, to me, email has been a real blessing because I hate cold calling and I think it's very nerve wracking. But when it's emails, I'm like, well, I don't care. You know, I don't see your face. So I'll just email away. Right. So your advice, go network, email. Now it's locked down. Take advantage that maybe you don't have to do face to face Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. go reach out to find like minded people Mm -hmm. with the same goals. I think just to add on, uh, you know, you mentioned email. Don't be afraid to email people whom you think are very senior. You'd be surprised a lot of times people are happy to help. Like when I first applied to, to work with uh, YB Tony Poir, who's the member of parliament for Damansara and who eventually became my first boss in politics, um, I really didn't think much about it. I was just like, hi, YB Tony, you know, I'm Yui, I'm doing this, 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 and I would like to intern with you. And to my surprise, he did reply and, you know, we met up and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, so you might be quite surprised, you know, that uh, sometimes uh, people who seem to be in very high positions are actually really nice and they are happy to take questions uh, and also guide you along the way or at least, you know, point you into the right direction. On that note, actually, I'll add on because I've often been asked on that advice is how to maximize the likelihood that you're going to collaborate um, is understand what the other person wants as well, mm-hmm. you know, so and try to, you know, make sure your, your goals are in sync. Um, so it's not just about their goals. It's not just about your goals, but, you know, try to find a match and propose, you know, draw the attention to, you know, how we can work together and achieve uh, something that's mutually beneficial. And I actually want to plug our mutually beneficial initiative. Yi Wei, uh, YB Yi Wei, um, YB Michelle Ng from Subang Jaya and Relate are collaborating on a great project that I'm very excited about because we want to know what people um, experience um, during MCO um, in terms of accessibility to mental health care. You know, so what was it like? You know, was it difficult um, to access it? Did you have a long wait t- waiting time? Did um, the rates go up? What do you think needs to change in the system so that the end user, the people who actually need help, can get the help that they need and really deserve? Um, so, Ayibe, uh, could you say something about why that project is important uh, to you? On a you know general basis, I think um, you know we know that there are not enough resources in the system. Uh, mental health care can be improved. Um, but uh, one of the beauties of this survey is that uh, it generates um, more nuanced uh, statements, um, especially from those who are end users, who are patients at uh, public hospitals and so on and so forth. So uh, what we want to do through this is to, to capture the nuance. You know, we need better solutions rather than saying, oh, let's just increase the budget. Oh, let's have more mental health care professionals. And I think, you know, your your opinions and your feelings about 
these are are crucial because in the end, you know, we are dealing with you and we want to offer better health care. So to um, everyone, so we really want your opinion and, you know, your experience because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, we, we are just kind of creating solutions that we think are best, but we don't know, you know, so we want to we want to check into what you need. Um, so we'll be launching the survey soon and we definitely hope that um, you participate and let us know what's going on for you. Yeah. So on that note, thank you, YB Lim Yi Wei, for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis. So be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Sukning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.